One Hundred Aphorisms of John Calvin by John Calvin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One. The true wisdom of man is situate in the knowledge of God, the Creator and Redeemer. Two. This knowledge is implanted in us naturally, and its result ought to be the worship of God, correctly ordered, or a reverence of deity conjoined with fear and love. 3. But this seed is corrupted by ignorance, whence arises a superstitious worship, and by wickedness, whence proceed a slavish fear and a hatred of deity. 4. The knowledge of deity is procured also from other sources, viz. from the workmanship of the universe and from the sacred scriptures. 5. The workmanship of the universe teacheth of what sort is the goodness, virtue, justice, wisdom of God, in creating things of heaven and of earth, and in preserving them by a government ordinary and extraordinary, in which his providence clearly becometh known. The same workmanship teacheth us the degree of our indigence, that we may learn to place our trust in the goodness, power, and wisdom of God, to obey his commandments, to make him our refuge in adversities, to refer to him what endowments we have, and to accept them with thanksgiving. 6. God the Creator is known also from the sacred scriptures, the essential qualities of which are to be considered, viz. that they are true and have issued from the Holy Spirit, facts which are proved by the witnessing of the Holy Spirit, by the practical force and ancientness of the scriptures by the sureness of prophecy, by the wondrous preservation of the law, by the calling and writings of apostles, by the assent of the church, by the constancy of martyrs. Whence it is manifest that those fanatics overthrow all the principles of piety, who, setting less by the scriptures, fly over to revelations. 7. It is to be considered what the scriptures teach, viz. what is the nature of God in itself, and in the creation and administration of things. 8. The nature of God is infinite, invisible, eternal, omnipotent. Hence it follows that they who assign a visible form to God are in error. The nature of God is also of one essence in which are three persons of the Father of the Son of the Holy Spirit. 9. In creation of things we are to consider specially heavenly and spiritual subsistences, i.e. first angels, some of whom are good, and the guardians of the pious, others evil, not as created such, but as corrupted. Secondly, terrestrial existences, particularly man, whose perfection shineth out in his soul and body. 10. The nature of God manifests itself in the administration of things after a twofold manner. There is a Catholic administration by which God governs all creatures, in reference to the quality which he bountifully dispensed to each at its creation. 11. There is also a special administration which is noticed in the purport of contingencies, so that if an individual be the subject of adversity or prosperity, it is his duty to ascribe the same wholly to God. Also in the order of things which act by reason of an established law of nature, in which things, however, there is naturally set a character peculiar to each, yet they exercise not their own native force except as far as they are guided by the present hand of God. 12. The divine administration is to be considered also in the system of time, past and future. Of the past, 
that we may know that all things fall out according to the dispensation of God, working either through ordinary, or without ordinary, or against ordinary means, so that, let whatsoever happen, it will fall out for the pious for good, and to the ungodly for evil. Of the future it teaches what is the proper scope of human deliberation, and what use may be made of lawful things, yet so that providence, on which we repose, may be invested with its own means. 13. Lastly, from the order to be considered of the fruits which the pious collect from the same. For we know with certainty, first, that the whole human race, and specially his own church, doth engage the care of God. Second, that God doth by his own nod rule all things, and govern them by his own wisdom. Third, that God hath the power of doing good sufficiently ample, because in his hand are heaven and earth. All creation is devoted in submission to him. The pious are at rest under his protection, and the power of infernal beings is held in restraint by his authority. Nothing doth happen by chance, although causes may be hidden, but by the will of God. And this as well being secret, we cannot scrutinize but reverently adore, as pronounced in the law and in the gospel. 14. The knowledge of God the Redeemer is collected from the fall of man, and from the material cause of redemption. 15. In the fall of man it is right to consider his duty and his capacity. 16. He was created after the image of God, i.e. he partook of wisdom, justice, divine sanctity, and therefore being perfect in soul and body, he was a debtor to observe entirely the commandments of God. 17. The immediate causes of the fall were Satan, the serpent, Eve, the forbidden fruit, the remote causes were infidelity, ambition, ingratitude, contumacy. Hence followed the blotting out of the image of God in man, who became unfaithful, unrighteous, obnoxious to death. 18. Man's capability, as well in relation to his soul as to his body, must next be considered. The perception of his soul in divine things, i.e. in the recognition and true worship of God, is blinder than that of a mole. He neither is able to devise nor execute good works. In human affairs, as for instance in the arts liberal or mechanics, man's understanding is, in a great degree, dim-sighted and changeable. But his will, as far as it concerns itself with things divine, desires only that which is evil, and as to inferior human matters, it is inconstant, wandering, and not altogether possessed of its own authority. 19. The body of man pursueth the corrupt appetites of the soul, and is subject to many infirmities, and finally to death. 20. Hence it follows that for lost man, redemption must be sought in Christ the Mediator, because the first adoption of an elect people, the preservation of the church, its restoration after dispersions, its liberation from perils, the hope of the pious, always were dependent on the grace of a Mediator. Therefore was the law given, which should hold the minds of men in suspense until the advent of Christ, a fact which is evident from the remembrance of the gratuitous covenant, oft-times rehearsed from its ceremonies, sacrificings, cleansings, and from the sequel of adoption, from the rite of the priesthood. 21. The material cause of redemption is Christ, in whom three points are to be considered. First, after what manner he may be set forth before men. Second, how he may be received. Third, how men may be retained in his society, communion. 22. Christ is set forth before man through the law and the gospel. 23. The law is of a threefold nature, ceremonial, judicial, moral. The use of the ceremonial law is abolished, but its result is perpetual. 
the judicial or civil law was peculiar to the jews and hath been taken away but the universal principles of equity described in the moral law do continue this moral law which appertains to the nurture and preservation of piety and justice is perpetual and is convenient for all mankind twenty four the use of the moral law is threefold first it points out our impotency iniquity and condemnation not that we may despair but that we may have recourse to christ secondly that they who are unmoved by promises may be restrained by the terror of threatenings thirdly that we may know what is the will of god that we may meditate upon it unto obedience that our minds may be confirmed as to this point that we may be withdrawn from slipperiness twenty five the substance of the law is contained in its preamble and in the two tables in the preamble is notified first the power of god that he might bind fast the people by the necessity of obedience second the promise of grace by which he professes himself god of the church third a benefit by which god convicts the jews of ingratitude unless they respond to his benignity twenty six the first table which relates to the worship of god is perfect in four precepts twenty seven the intent of the first ordinance is that god alone should have preeminence in the sight of his people therefore to god alone do we owe adoration affiance offerings of prayer thanksgivings twenty eight the purport of the second precept is that god willeth not that his worship be profaned by a superstitious ritual the commandment is twofold one part restrains over freedom on our part so that we may not subject the deity to the perception of sense neither represent him by any form the other part forbids that we worship any images under pretext of religion therefore it puts forth the power of god which he will not suffer to be despised his jealousy also because he will admit no fellow his retaliation upon children's children his mercy to the worshippers of his majesty twenty nine the third ordinance commands three things first that every conception of mind or utterance of tongue should have respect to the majesty of god second that we do not rashly abuse his holy word and sacred mysteries for ambitious or covetous ends third that we reproach not god's works but proclaim them with praises of his wisdom power goodness justice unto all these is opposed that triple profanation of god's name by perjury unnecessary swearing as well by idolatry namely when in god's place we substitute saints or animate and inanimate creatures thirty the end of the fourth precept is that we being dead as to our proper affections and daily works should meditate on god's kingdom three considerations hence arise first a spiritual rest when the faithful are at leisure from their usual works that god may work in them second that there may be a stated day for calling upon the name of god hearing his word and the performance of sacred ceremonies third that servants may have some relaxation from work thirty one the latter table contains the six following laws as the duties of loving-kindness towards our neighbour the fifth precept purports since an observance of god's own method is pleasing to him it follows that degrees of rank ordained by him are inviolable it is therefore forbidden us to detract from the dignity of superiors either by contempt contumacy or ingratitude yea rather we should treat them with reverence obedience gratitude thirty two the sixth precept purports that as god hath bound together the race of mankind by a certain oneness so the general safety is as a duty committed to each individual 
whence it follows that violence is forbidden to each separately, and benevolence is commanded. 33. The end of the seventh precept is this, that, because God loveth purity, it is a duty that all uncleanness should be put away from us. Therefore wantonness, whether in thought, word, or deed, is forbidden by him. 34. The intent of the eighth precept is that inasmuch as injustice is abomination before God, he willeth that every one should receive his own. Now men defraud through violence, malicious imposture, craft, enticements, and other means. 35. The ninth precept purports on this wise, since God, who is truth, must abhor lying, he forbiddeth calumnies and false impeachments, by which the good name of a neighbour suffers injury also false statements through which any one is depressed as to his temporal estate on the other hand god requires that by maintenance of truth every individual amongst us should protect the entireness of his neighbour's reputation and property thirty six the tenth commandment purports that inasmuch as it is god's will that the whole soul be possessed by the affection love therefore all covetousness which is an adversary of loving-kindness must be dislodged from the mind consequently every kind of longing which inclineth towards the injury of another is forbidden thirty seven it has been said by us that christ is exhibited to us through the gospel first of all the accordance of the doctrine of the gospel or the new testament with the old testament is shown for the following reasons first because the same hope of immortality may be and shall have been to pious men under either covenant this same covenant is established not on men's works but on god's mercy there is the same mediator between God and man, Christ. 38. Hence a distinction between either covenant is exhibited, which consists of five particulars. First, under the law the heavenly inheritance was exhibited to view under earthly things. Under the gospel our minds are directed towards it at once. Second, the old covenant set forth, under figures, only a representation, the truth itself being wanting. The new covenant displays the truth actually present third the old was by reason of the law a ministration of condemnation and death the new was a method of justice and of life fourth the old was a state of bondage which tended to beget fear in the mind the new a system of liberty which can lift up the mind into affiance fifth the word was destined for the jews only now it is preached to all nations 39 the main end of the gospel doctrine is to teach first of what manner of nature christ is second for what purpose he is sent third how he fulfilled the respective parts of redemption forty christ is god and man god that he might grant as a largesse to his own righteousness sanctification redemption man because he was to liquidate the debt of man forty one christ was sent to execute a function first of a prophet in preaching truth fulfilling prophecy in doing and teaching the will of god second of a king in governing the whole church and every member of the same and in defending his people from every harm from enemies third of a priest in offering his own body for sins in reconciling god to us by his obedience in always interceding for his own with prayers to god the father forty two christ hath fulfilled all the parts of a redeemer in dying for our sins rising again for our justification opening the heavens to us through his ascension sitting at the right hand of the father whence he is to come to judge the quick and the dead therefore he hath well deserved for us the grace and salvation of god
43. We receive Christ the Redeemer by the efficacy of the Holy Spirit, who unites us with Christ. Therefore he is called the Spirit of sanctification and adoption. The earnest and seal of our salvation, also water, oil, a fountain, fire, the hand of God. 44. Faith is the hand of the soul, which by the same power of the Holy Spirit takes hold of Christ, offered by the gospel. 45. It is the ordinary duty of faith to yield assent to the truth of God, how frequently soever, whatsoever, or in whatever manner God may speak. It is its peculiar duty to regard the will of God in Christ, his clemency, the promises of his grace, into a certainty of which things the Holy Spirit both enlightens our minds and confirms our hearts. 46. Faith, therefore, is a firm and sure knowledge of God's good will towards us, which is based on God's free promise in Christ, and is laid open to our minds, and is sealed up in our hearts through the Spirit. 47. The effects of faith are fourfold, first, repentance, second, a Christian life, third, justification, fourth, prayer. 48. Repentance consists of two parts, first, in the making ourselves dead spiritually, which proceeds from the owning of sin, and from a true sense of the divine judgment. Second, in the restoration to life, the fruits of which are piety towards God and charity towards our neighbor, the hope of eternal life, holiness of living. To this genuine repentance is opposed that spurious one, which partakes of contrition, confession, and satisfaction. The two former have indeed a relation to true penitence, provided that there be hearty contrition through an acknowledgment of sin, and that it be not separated from a hope of pardon through Christ. But as to confession, let it either be private, made to God alone, or to the pastors of the church, with freedom, and for the end of consolation, and not for the introducing an enumeration of sins, or torturing the conscience. Or confession may be public, such as the confession of the church collectively, or of one or many persons, in the presence of the whole church. Satisfaction, originally an ecclesiastical usage employed for the edification of the church by reason of recovery from sin and its open confession, has been made by the sophists to bear a relation to God, whence arose the doctrine of supplies of indulgences in this world and of the purgatorial fire after death. But that contrition of the sophists, also oracular confession, as they call it, and satisfaction of work are opposed to a gratuitous remission of sins. 49. Two parts are appointed to a Christian life. First, the love of righteousness, thus that we may be holy because God is holy, we are conjoined with him and are reckoned as his people. Second, that a rule may be prescribed for us which will not suffer us to stray from our course of righteousness, and that we may be made conformable to Christ. But his example is proposed to us, the likeness of which it is our duty to show forth in our lives. The blessings of God are added, to which it will be the extreme of ingratitude in us not to act suitably. 50. The main purport of the Christian life is to deny ourselves. 51. This self-denial hath four objects. First, that we may consecrate ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Second, that we may not seek our own, but the things of God and our neighbor. Third, that we may patiently bear the cross, the fruits of which are an acknowledgment of our own weakness, the proving of our patience, the correction of our faults, more earnest prayer, more prompt meditation on eternal life. 
fourth that we may know how to use the present life and its aids both as respects what is necessary and delightful necessity requires that we should possess all things as if we possessed nothing that we bear penury without emotion of spirit abundance without excess that we may know to bear satiety hunger want with patience also that we take into our calculation the interests of our neighbour because an account of our own stewardship is to be rendered that all our actions may correspond with our calling what is delightful ought to be to us a greater argument for praising the beneficence of god fifty two in the consideration of justification which is the third effect of faith the explanation of the word itself first presents itself he is said to be justified who in the judgment of god is accounted and held to be just he is justified by works whose life is pure and blameless before god and no individual hath ever been such christ excepted they are justified by faith who shut out from the justification of works lay hold of the justification of christ such are the elect of god fifty three the result of this is very firm consolation for in the place of a severe judge we have a most clement father being justified in christ and having peace we turn our thoughts unto sanctity relying upon his power fifty four also christian liberty doth follow which consists in three things first that the consciences of the faithful may lift themselves up above the law and may forget the entire justification of the law second that the consciences of the faithful free from the yoke of the law may of their own accord obey the will of god third that they be constrained before god by no obligation of indifferent things here a caution must be noted against two precipices first that we do not abuse the gifts of god second that we avoid offence whether given or received fifty five prayer is the fourth effect of faith in prayer are to be noted its fruits its laws its errors its requests fifty six the fruits of prayer are fivefold first whilst we accustom ourselves to flee to god for refuge our heart is inflamed with a greater desire to seek to love and to worship him second no evil longing enters our heart of which it may shame us to make god a witness third we accept his benefits with giving of thanks fourth having obtained a gift we the more ardently meditate on the beneficence of god fifth experience confirms to us the goodness providence and truth of god fifty seven the rules of prayer are four first that we need not be ordered otherwise than as men who are entering upon conference with god therefore the raising of hands emotion of heart perseverance may be recommended second we must feel our own poorness third we must abdicate every thought of our own individual dignity giving glory to god in full fourth prostrate in the midst of the depths of woes we should be animated with a sure hope of prevailing by entreaty since we are relying upon the injunction and promise of god fifty eight they are in error who offer up prayers to departed saints first because scripture teacheth that god is to be invoked who alone knoweth what things are necessary for us he is willing to be present because he hath promised he is able also because he is omnipotent second because it is god's will that he be invoked by faith which rests upon his word and promise third because faith is corrupted as soon as it departs from this rule now in the invocation of saints there exists no word no promise therefore there is no faith nor can these saints either hear or assist 
59. The substance of the prayer delivered to us by Christ the Lord is comprehended in a preamble and two tables. 60. In the preamble shineth forth God's goodness, inasmuch as he is said to be our Father. It follows then that we are his sons. To seek, therefore, supplies from any other quarter would be to reproach God either with want of power or with cruelty of nature. Sins hinder not that as suppliants we may implore mercy. An affection of brotherly love ought to intercede between us. In this preamble the power of God shineth forth because he is in the heavens. From this we collect that God is diffused through all things, and that in seeking him it is becoming in man to be raised above corporeal and spiritual sense, for that God is exalted above every accident of corruption, or of change, encircling and governing the universe by his power. 61. The first table is wholly devoted to the glorification of God, and contains three petitions. First, that the name of God, i.e. his power, goodness, wisdom, justice, and truth, may be hallowed, that is, that men should never think upon or speak of God without the utmost veneration. Second, that God may correct by virtue of his spirit the depraved longings of the flesh, may form all our senses to an obedience of his authority, may protect his own sons and break the endeavours of the impious. The use of this petition is triple. It draws us away from the corruptions of this world. It enkindleth the desire of mortifying the flesh. It animates us to an endurance of the cross. The third petition treats not of the secret will of God, but of that which becomes known to us through the scriptures, to which will our voluntary obedience responds. 62. The second table containing three remaining petitions, which have relation to ourselves and our neighbours. First, it seeks all things which the body needs for its use, whilst subject to the elements of this world. We commit ourselves to the care and providence of God that he may feed, cherish, and preserve us. Second, we petition for those things which tend to spiritual life, namely the remission of sins which takes away the notion of satisfaction, to which is appended this condition that we ourselves have been injured by our neighbours in word or deed, do nevertheless pardon their offences towards us. Third, liberation from temptation, or that we may be provided with arms and be defended by divine succour, so that we may be competent to gain the victory. Temptations vary in their cause. God tempts Satan, the world, the flesh also, and material things, for we are tried by prosperous things, as wealth, honours, comeliness, also by adverse events, poverty, contempt, afflictions. We are proved by the result, for God tempts pious men for good, Satan, the world, and the flesh for evil. 63. Moreover, these four effects of faith lead us to a certainty of election and of a final resurrection. 64. The causes of election are the efficient, mere bountifulness of God, which we are bound to acknowledge with thanksgiving and humility. The material cause is Christ the beloved Son. The final cause, that we, being sure as to our salvation, because we are of God, may forever glorify him, as well in the present as in the future life. Its results have respect to many individuals, or to one, and that in the electing some, and with justice reprobating others. The elect are called by the preaching of the word, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. They are justified, sanctified, that at length they may be glorified. 65. There must be a final resurrection, first because we cannot be perfectly glorified by another method, second because Christ hath already risen in our flesh, third because God is all-powerful.
66. God holds us fast in the fellowship of Christ by a government, ecclesiastical and civil. 67. In ecclesiastical government, three points are to be considered. First, what may constitute a church. Second, how it may be ruled. Third, what may be its power. 68. The church may be regarded in a twofold view. First, that unseen universal church, which is the communion of saints. Second, a visible specific church. It is distinguished by the pure preaching of God's word and by a lawful administration of the sacraments. 69. In respect of the church's mode of rule, five points are to be weighed in the mind. First, they who are over it. Second, their qualification. Third, the nature of their call. Fourth, their functions. Fifth, what may have been the structure of the olden church. 70. Men, not angels, are over the church. In this God declareth his goodness to us. We have the special practice of humility and obedience, also the best bond of mutual charity. 71. They who are over the church are prophets, apostles, evangelists, whose office hath been for a time, also pastors and teachers who continue forever. 72. Their call is twofold, the call within and the call without. The call within is from the Spirit of God. The call from without combines four points which must be weighed. First, the qualifications of men to be chosen, viz. that they be endowed with wholesome learning and good morals. Second, after what manner they are to be chosen, viz. with fasting and prayer. Third, by whom they are to be chosen, viz. immediately by God as prophets and apostles, mediately under the guidance of the word by bishops, elders in respect of age and the people. Fourth, with what form, forsooth by imposition of hands, the use of which is threefold. First, that the dignity of the function may be set forth. Second, that he who is called may know he is consecrated to God. Third, that he may believe that the Holy Spirit will not be wanting to this sacred ministry. 73. The duty of pastors in the church is to preach the word, administer the sacraments, employ discipline. 74. The constitution of the olden church was divided into presbyters, seniors, deacons, who distributed the property of the church to bishops, clergy, the poor, and for the reparation of sacred edifices. 75. The power of the church is to be considered in the relation of doctrine, legislation, and jurisdiction. 76. Its doctrine relates to decrees or points of faith, none of which decrees are to be delivered foreign to God's word, but all must have a reference to the glory of God and the building up of the church. It respects also the application of the decrees which ought to agree with the proportion of faith. 77. The laws of the church, with respect to precepts of needful observance, ought to be conformable to God's written word. In matters of indifference, a regard must be had to places, persons, seasons, together with the observance of order and decorum. But ordinances are to be shunned, which are delivered by false pastors in place of the true worship of God, which straighten the conscience by a narrow necessity, which make God's word of no force, which are useless and absurd, which by their number oppress conscience, which introduce a theatrical show, which are valued as expiatory sacrifices, which are converted to gain. 78. The jurisdiction of the church is twofold. First, that jurisdiction appropriated to the clergy, which is acted upon in provincial and general synods. Second, that jurisdiction which affects both clergy and laity, the intent of which is twofold, as well that offences may be hindered, as that offence which hath risen up may be put down. The executive jurisdiction consists in private and public admonitions, also in expulsion from communion, the aim of which is threefold, First, lest the church be evil spoken of. 
second lest the good be corrupted by the company of the bad third that the expelled may under a sense of shame enter upon repentance seventy nine by the same jurisdiction fasts are appointed in reference to certain seasons and vows are made the object of fasts is that the flesh may be grieved that we may be better set in order for prayer that they may be proofs of humility and obedience they consist in the time of taking food its quality and quantity here we must take heed lest we rend our garments only and not our hearts as the hypocrites do lest when done they be reckoned as a work of merit lest they be exacted too rigidly as if necessary to salvation eighty in making vows it is to be weighed in the mind first to whom the vow is made namely to god whence it follows that nothing must be attempted unless with his word going before us by which we are taught what may please or displease god second who maketh the vow viz man we must take heed therefore that we neglect not our own freedom that we make no promise which is above our strength or which is at war with our calling third what may be vowed here some consideration must be had of time as well of that which is past what is our vow of thanksgiving and penitence as well of time to come that hereafter we may be more cautious and by these incentives be stirred up to our duty hence it is apparent what must be thought of papistical vows eighty one in explaining the sacraments three things are to be considered first forsooth what is the outward symbol by which god sealeth as a witness the promises of loving-kindness towards us in order to uphold the weakness of our faith we also in our turn give witness to our piety towards him second what things are needful viz the sign the matter signified the promise general communion third how many in number are the sacraments viz baptism and the lord's supper eighty two the sign of baptism is water the thing signified is christ's blood the promise is eternal life the communicants or partakers are adult persons after having made a confession of faith infants are partakers as well as adults inasmuch as baptism has succeeded to the place of circumcision and in either the mystery promise use efficaciousness are the same remission of sins doth also belong to infants therefore the sign of this remission doth belong to them eighty three baptism hath a twofold end first that it may minister to our faith towards god because it is a sign of our washing through christ's blood also of the putting to death our flesh and its being born again in christ moreover we being united with christ believe that we shall be partakers of all his good things and that there will be no condemnation to us second that it may minister to profession with reference to our neighbour because it is a token that we wish to be reckoned amongst the children of god we give proof also that we confess the religion of christ and that we desire that all belonging to us should breathe god's praise eighty four the lord's supper is a spiritual banquet by which we are preserved in that life whereunto god hath by his own word begotten us eighty five the end of the supper is threefold first that it may serve to the strengthening of our faith towards god second to our making confession before men third to an exhortation to mutual love eighty six heed is to be taken lest in setting too small a value on the signs we tear them away too much from their proper mysteries unto which in a manner they are knit and also lest in exalting the signs beyond bounds we seem to make inconsiderable the mysteries themselves eighty seven the parts of the lord's supper are two 
first spiritual truth in which is to be considered its signification in promises also the subject matter christ dead and alive again the effect viz our redemption and justification second the signs seen bread and wine eighty eight the papistical mass is opposed to the lord's supper first it treats christ with affront second it buryeth his cross third it annuls his death fourth it takes away the blessings which we obtain in christ fifth it enfeebleth the sacraments in which a remembrance of his death is left eighty nine the following are falsely reckoned sacraments confirmation penance extreme unctions ordination which hath produced the greater or the lesser orders matrimony ninety there remaineth a civil administration which relates to outward righteousness of manners ninety one here is to be considered magistracy laws commonalty ninety two the magistrate holds the place of god he is a father of his country a guardian of the laws he presides over the administration of justice nurseth the church ninety three by these names he is stirred up to his duty first that before god he may walk holily and before men may exhibit integrity prudence continence innocence righteousness second that by special comfort he may soothe the difficulties of his office ninety four specific forms of magistracy or civil administration are monarchy aristocracy democracy ninety five as concerning laws we must weigh well what should be their constitution by taking into account the nature of god and man then their equitable application by an attention to times places nations ninety six the people oweth to a magistracy first reverence as to god's legate and that with sincerity of mind second obedience whether in fulfilling edicts or paying tributes or undertaking public offices and burdens third affection by which a people may commit the prosperity of rulers in prayers to god ninety seven we are commanded to obey not only good magistrates but also all who are in authority even should they exercise a tyranny for they are not appointed leaders without god's decree ninety eight moreover when tyrants rule there may first enter the recollection of our sins which by such scourges are punished hence a humbleness of soul will put a rein upon our impatience also a deduction that it is not our province to apply the cure to such ills this only remains that we implore help from god in whose hand are the hearts and inclinations of kings ninety nine god however checks the furiousness of tyrants by two modes either stirring up some of his own servants as evident avengers who may rescue the people from tyranny or directing to the same end the rage of men who are thinking and plotting another design thus overthrowing one tyranny by another one hundred obedience now prescribed to special persons doth not hinder but that there may be popular magistrates whose province it may be to restrain tyrants and to defend the liberty of the people but obedience is to be rendered to magistrates with this salvo that the proper right of the king who is supreme remain entire and untouched end of one hundred aphorisms of john calvin by john calvin